Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hello, good afternoon, and thank you very much indeed for joining us at today's lunchtime lecture. Um, today we're having a Data as Culture lunchtime lecture. Data as Culture is the contemporary art program for the Open Data Institute. I'm Hannah Redler, and I'm the Associate Curator in Residence, and I run the program with Julie Freeman, who's an artist and the Art Associate. But we're really delighted to invite Giles Lane from Proboscis. Um, we've known and collaborated with Giles for a very, very long time, way beyond the point where me or Julie started working with the Open Data Institute. And Giles is an artist who's been exploring um, the impact of digital technologies, network technologies, um, participatory practice, and all manner of intersecting things um, for a very long time through his organization, Proboscis. And um, the project I've invited him to speak to us about today is a project that completely changed my perception of what data is and might be and what it might mean to individuals. But I'm not going to give the game away. I'll hope that you'll join me in warmly welcoming Giles Lane. Thank you, Hannah. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, it's very nice to see you all here. Um, I'm going to talk today about a concept that I call data manifestation, uh, and in particular how I believe it can add a really significant dimension to the way we make meaning from data, and I specifically mean digital data, da digital data sets. Uh, as Hannah said, I'm, I uh, run an organization called uh, Proboscis, which um, is uh, a non-profit uh, artist-led creative studio is how we've described it for quite some time and essentially that means we're not really uh, like other arts organizations and we're not really a consultancy and we're not really a, an agency we're s a little sort of a smirch of all of these different things um, and we have over the last 22 years uh, since we founded um, worked in a number of different disciplines we've done an awful lot of collaborative work across different sectors whether collaborating with government, uh, with uh, lots and lots of different universities and different disciplines within uh, academic fields, but also we do a lot of work at the kind of community level, uh, often bridging right the way across from highly localised and specific communities right up to uh, larger entities like institutions, industries and uh, governments. So I'm going to talk today, as I said, about data manifestation. Um, and just to give you a little uh, background to this, it, it kind of emerged out of a long series of projects uh, exploring the way that we use and conceive of digital, emerging digital, digital technologies, and in specific, uh, I'm referring to network technologies as part of that, uh, in social life. So back in 2002, 2003, we set up a project called Urban Tapestries, which was a very early attempt to think what uh, the addition of geographic uh, data to what we think of as content, so films, videos, text, uh, photographs, um, how that would change the way that we would inhabit urban space in particular. Uh, that particular project, we built our own system. We collaborated with the Ordnance Survey to use a high-level mapping layer. Uh, and we began to experiment with the very, very first smartphones, which uh, predated uh, iPhones and what have you by about five years. Um, 
And from that, we, we wanted to explore what actually happens when people are able to interact in a kind of live and dynamic way with the urban environment, to be able to layer information and also access information that is there behind the scenes. So we did some experiments uh, beyond that initial project. So over five years between 2004 and 2009, we had a research program called Social Tapestries, which expanded beyond the original project and took us into working with specific communities, housing communities, communities around public spaces. Uh, and we began to experiment with uh, different forms of uh, interaction with the environment. One of the projects we did quite early on was uh, with the artist and engineer Natalie Jeremijenko, and we had originally, back in 2001, commissioned her to produce a project she called Feral Robots, and we adapted that and added it into the Urban Tapestries platform that we had created, and we looked at what could people do if they were able to uh, sense in their own environment different kinds of pollutants and then add that to the kinds of data that uh, the national statistics or uh, other local authorities could provide at a kind of highly localized level, and then add to that the local knowledge that people who lived in the area uh, would be able to uh, overlay. So we were kind of very much interested in this, this, this idea of data, both data created but also data sensed. And from that, we began to kind of experiment with, uh, at those days there wasn't really any open urban data. Uh, essentially we were scraping um, PDF files on the, uh, uh, the National Statistics website to get ward level and below data to add into these kinds of things. We did another project um, about a year or two later in 2007 uh, called Snout where we created carnival costumes that were that had sensors but also they had displays on them as well and we did a, a sort of a mock carnival through the streets of Shoreditch uh, <laughs> uh, engaging with thinking about what we could detect on the street but also relating that to uh, community forums. There's a lot of community forums where people, particularly in built-up urban areas, are concerned about the impact of pollution. Uh, often these are in the most, the poorest districts, where there's all kinds of deprivation. So we were interested in what, what can we do? How can we explore these things? How can we make sense of the world around us? As we were doing these things, often what we find with digital technologies is that the experiences themselves are quite ephemeral. So, you know, we go along and we take part in a, you know, we go to a festival, we take part in some interactive element, and the interaction is very momentary. And you come away with it and you sort of have a memory of it, but it's very hard to attract. Um, we did some collaborations with some other uh, research organizations, and one of the things we noticed was where people are building uh, interactive digital systems, for instance, in zoos and museums, people would sort of wander around, they would collect things, but nobody ever ever went back to the highly personalized web pages or websites of their visit that were uh, created. So we thought this was kind of interesting and we started to think about this and in our own projects which involved digital interactions we started to make things. Uh, this is probably 2008, 2009. Uh, we did a project called Sensory Threads where we again designed a wearable uh, set of sensors that a group of people went out and the sensors were sensitive to each other uh, and as they went through the different sensors that each of the four people had detected different things about the urban environment and then relayed that to uh, a piece of software which generated a live audio track. That was also uploaded to another system um, 
And that system was then uh, replayed in a different format in an environment, a museum exhibition setting environment. One of the things we found uh, was that the experience was interesting and people liked the sound, but they wanted something more tangible. So as part of that, we built a little printer that printed out a representation, a visualization of their journey and uh, the sense of readings that they encountered. And we found this really simple little thing uh, helped people recapture and remember so, uh, their experience in a much more tangible way. From this, we began thinking about, hmm, what can we do more? How can we push this further? How can we take this idea of the tangible souvenir of an ephemeral digital experience and turn it into something much more profound? And how can we start to think about the different data sets that we're beginning to interact with in a more profound way? And that led me to think about the relationship we have to the world as individuals, as human beings. So the question that I would pose as I sort of slowly move into the project I'm going to focus on is how do we know? How do we know what we know? And how do we make meaning from what we know? And the answer to this is really quite simple. It's about the interaction of our senses with the various stimuli that come into them from the external world and how this is processed by our consciousness and then woven together with our memories and our emotions. This is what roots us to the world. It also helps us make meaning of everything that we experience. So we began to think, could we begin to apply this to some of the data sets that we were interacting with? Could we perhaps investigate data in new ways, not just visually, as most data is represented, but with all the senses that the human body has? So... What I'd like to say about this concept of the human sensorium as separate to the way that we normally think of making sense of information is that it has a high complexity. It's a, a system of extremely high complexity and entanglement. If you think about these kinds of issues, you think about the way that our different senses all interact with each other, they're not separate systems. They're part of a whole. It's very difficult to disentangle them. Uh, and I think this is a key kind of concept. And what it does that I think is extremely profound and has really interesting implications for our contemporary society and the way in which data-driven systems based on algorithms are increasingly coming to make decisions for us is that this system of the human sensorium produces judgments that are based on multiple factors and also multiple dimensions that all work together. This is very, very different from the kind of way that we build computer models that take data in from one and spit out a decision at the other end. I think it's qualitatively different. So uh, just as an example of that, think about, uh, think about eating something. Think about eating something and you find it delicious. What is it that makes it delicious? Is it just the taste? It's also the smell. It might be the texture. The, you know, something, it might be the way it feels in your hand. It might be the way it feels in your mouth. Sometimes it might evoke a memory or it might produce an emotion. Uh, and occasionally, um, to add in a little bit of Proust, it might even induce a momentary sense of disruption of your balance. And this can then, of course, lead to all kinds of things which are nothing to do with the data. 
and this is part of the human condition. My sense is I don't think we ha are anywhere near uh, the kinds of systems, computer systems, algorithms that could replicate that kind of complexity. And I think as long as we're making, designing systems which produce judgment uh, decisions for us that are not based on these kind of complex, entangled human judgment, uh, we're really doing ourselves a disservice. So there's another aspect to this, which I think is also worth thinking about. And coming to this uh, place and this space uh, from the frame of art and being an artist, I would say that art and aesthetics are a very critical way to begin to think about this, uh, this, this form of complexity. So for instance, when you encounter a work of art, it's the work itself, it's the experience of the work itself, sorry, that determines your aesthetic reaction to that work. Now that reaction, it could be one of awe, it could be one of delight, it could be revulsion or even indifference. But it is the encounter that determines your aesthetic experience. This is, of course, driven by very many complex factors as well. So materials of the work, the lighting, color, scale, your own memory, uh, and your emotions. These are all part of an aesthetic experience. And there can be no right or wrong aesthetic experience. There's just difference. And in the realm of art history, the, uh, the, the discussion around aesthetics is about the different qualities that different people perceive. So there's no right, there's no wrong. I think this is a really important framing that we need to think about in terms of the way that we use data and the way that we understand data as well. From that, one of the things I'm, my, my sort of thesis is that much of the data that we're currently capturing through digital systems that's recorded, that's analyzed, uh, and then is used to make uh, decision, uh, in inferential decision-making systems, it's principally driven from a visual perspective. So if you think about the spreadsheets, the programming, every way that the systems designers, the systems uh, programmers are thinking about it is done from a visual interface. And we're constantly talking about visualizing data, but we don't have many other ways of interacting with that data. Um, you know, spreadsheets, graphs, uh, animations, these are all the, way, the, the ways we're most familiar of thinking about analyzing the data that are coming in. There are a few cases of uh, sonic representations, and there have been uh, passingly few, but there have been uh, some rare examples of haptic interfaces. But on the whole, pretty much everything is based on a visual relationship. But of course, not all of our experiences are visual. And my proposition is that, as I said earlier, if we fail to encompass a more rounded, more inclusive set of the whole human sensorium, then we're really missing a great deal of uh, potential in meaning making. So, to dive in a bit further. Back in 2012, uh, we were commissioned as part of a public art program in Cambridge uh, to collaborate with some scientists at Philips who have a small research lab uh, in the Science Center, the Science Park. Uh, we were asked by the scientists at Philips uh, as part of this collaboration to think about a particular problem that they were uh, 
concerned about. Philips is a big player in telehealth. Uh, telehealth is a system uh, or a set of platforms and technologies that are about embedding the homes of people with very serious illnesses uh, with different kinds of sensors, uh, relaying that information live to medical professionals and creating an interactive interface between them. Um, so they, they were very heavily involved in this at the middleware uh, area. And as of interest, they started to think about what would happen if we took some of those elements and applied them to people who aren't seriously ill, people who think of themselves as sort of nominally healthy, so probably all of us in this room. And there had been a burgeoning kind of industry growing up in the last couple of years before that. Um, obviously, Fitbit, Fuel Band, these different kinds of health tracking devices. But uh, what we were uh, kind of made privy to at, the, at that very beginning of 2012, uh, and these statistics weren't generally known at the time, but something like uh, between, I think, I'll try and remember the statistics, but essentially something in the order of 90% of all of the devices were, went silent after about a month. So these, these uh, you know, expensive toys that people were buying, usually at Christmas and birthdays as people want to work off the, uh, the little gut that they've acquired over the festive season, because it, the, the, uh, they weren't having the effect, people tended to, you know, as usual, drop them in the back of a drawer. This is well-known with kind of early technologies. But they were thinking, well, you know, this is a real issue because if the, if the personalised tools for gathering the data aren't uh, engaging ordinary people, where is there the possibility of any kind of future health benefit from actually gathering data about ourselves? So we began to think about this um, from the perspective as a, of, a, of a kind of an artistic intervention. And, um, and uh, our kind of first feeling about it was there's something really obvious here. There's something really obvious about what's not, not going on which is that how does a graph relate to the story of my life? If I'm looking at a graph every day, does it, how do I connect to that? Uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't personally make any kind of connection to it. Uh, so we started to think about, well, how do, how do people mark change? How do they mark difference? How do they create mnemonic triggers for themselves that have meaning? Uh, and this is often done with objects. I mean, we're a highly tactile, material-based species. We like things. Uh, just looking at the room here, as I always do when I give these talks, everybody is wearing something different. And you're wearing those things because they, you like the material, you like the feel of it on your skin, you like the way it looks. These are, these are very different things to thinking about a, an abstract visualization of the self. You know, humans are not, in many ways, uh, always concerned with the abstract. We like things, we like stuff. So we began to think about different ways that we could mark uh, the, 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 the relationship that we have to the data that we might be collecting about our own lives uh, and how we could begin to build a, a different kind of relationship to that since it was very, very clear that looking at a graph of how many steps you've walked or you know, what your heartbeat was uh, on a phone or a laptop simply wasn't uh, attractive to people. So 
So as I've said, I mean, we saw this as being about the narrative of the self. How do you erupt data into the narrative of the self such that it has a kind of a tactility and uh, uh, a stickiness or a glue to it that um, is actually going to engage people with thinking about uh, the relationship between what they do uh, and what, where they want to be. So we began to look at the different things that people have, wedding rings, uh, jewellery. Uh, but one other thing we found is that there are an awful lot of people have very kind of what appear to be quite random objects that hold significance and meaning for them. Uh, one of the classic ones I found was a pebble from a beach. I've met an awful number of men of a certain age who uh, quite often, not every day, but perhaps on a regular basis, carry a pebble on a beach, and it's usually something to do with teaching a child swimming. Um, but it acts as a marker, and it takes them back to that place, and it connects them to the narrative of who they are, and who they want to be, who they think they are. So we began to think about how could we, how could we replicate that kind of level of mnemonic trigger, that level of meaning that people inject into a thing and carry around with them. And what we did was we built a, a series of uh, simple data loggers uh, that connected to a range of uh, different sensors, all off-the-shelf comp off components. Um, we collected, uh, just within the team in the studio, it's about three or four people, uh, we just collected a range of different uh, data patterns over a week. Some of them were digital data, some of them were observed data as well. Step count was one, pulse rate, sleep patterns, blood pressure, and other kinds of stress factors. And then we also mapped things like journey times for work uh, or, or traveling to work. Uh, and then we, we, we began to think about how we could fold them all together and deal to first off sort of present that data in a way that it can interact with, it, with itself, but also how we could begin to turn that into something uh, that would create a tangible outcome at the end. So my colleague, uh, Stefan Coopers, developed an algorithm that we could use. And we began thinking about uh, how we would be able to flow a range of different data types into an algorithmic model, and then from that generate some kind of shape in three dimensions. Uh, and at that time, we were thinking very much around 3D printing and through access to 3D printers. So this was also partly thinking about um, a model for what might happen, say, 10 or 15 years uh, into the future. And, you know, in the same way that uh, the desktop publishing revolution of the late 1980s kind of eventually fed through to the fact almost everybody has uh, an inkjet printer at home or access to one very quickly, we started to think, well, things like 3D printers are quite likely to be extremely accessible within 10 to 15 years. So. We, were trying, we, were, we got a little stuck around thinking about the form that this uh, 3D printed object derived from uh, digital data would, shape, would take. And uh, we began to look to nature for inspiration. And at that moment, we realized that the maths and the geometries of shells uh, would offer us an extraordinary complex uh, range uh, of expression uh, of data in a 3D format. So what I'm now going to show is just a few of the examples that we, uh, we generated from this uh, very early project. 
So we collected, I th I'm trying to remember how many shells we did. I think we printed over 50 shells uh, or generated over 50 shell models. Uh, initially, it all printed in, you know, standard sort of uh, 3D printed in standard uh, laser sintered nylon. And then over time, we selected a number of them uh, and explored uh, working in different materials. So these ones, this is silver. This one's been printed in cer glazed ceramic. Uh, there's one in glass, and there's a couple in various different polymers. Um, and we were interested also in the, the nature of scale, the scale of an object. How big does it have to be, or how small does it have to be to have meaning? And what does the, the, the scale or the size of the object do in terms of its affordance uh, as a meaning-making object? And then also the different uh, qualities of materials. So all these things uh, have a very different feeling to them. And they make us think and ref respond and reflect to the object in different ways. What I'm going to do beyond this is actually let me just move to I'll just move to the next one. So just so you can see this um, this uh, images of uh, one of the shells. In fact, this one here that was printed in silver. Uh, so you can see I don't know if you can see along the Z axis is the this is the uh, average pulse. This was, I think, about a week's worth of data. Uh, I think this is even my data. Um, so the length of the shell is determined by the average pulse rate of my heart. Um, the, uh, the surface pattern scaling, so the depth of the ridges on the surface, is determined by the quality and length of sleep. Um, and then here you can see uh, the growth segments is controlled by uh, the number of steps, so again, a, a kind of an, uh, how much I did or didn't walk over uh, a week would uh, affect that. Uh, we did some measures of anxiety to think about growth disturbances, so uh, whether or not it feels... Uh, 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 of course, there's another element to this, which is printing in slightly different materials gives you different surface resolutions, so the, the silver, it tends to be smoother um, but if you printed it in, uh, say, a more uh, uh, a material where you can have uh, greater resolution, you'd, you'd see more difference there. And finally, we also did some measuring of air pollution. Uh, and this uh, affects the scaling and the length of, of disturbances. Yes? Um, sorry, how did you measure anxiety? Uh, we did a... Um, we used a, uh, yeah, yeah, a sweat. Uh, uh, the name of the sensor's just gone out of my. Galvanic. Yes, a galvanic a GSV, galvanic skin response. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we used that to kind of take a measure of anxiety. I mean, this was the point was we were using off-the-shelf things rather than looking at highly customized sensors, um, and that's one of the ways that we often work is to look at what's available and work rather than get uh, too detailed and access things which are too far from the ordinary public. Essentially, most of what we do is about inspiring other people to kind of replicate our work and build on it. Yes? In terms of ex external Sorry. environmental uh, data, did you only do the pollution or did you like do other, other environmental data, like temperature, humidity? Uh, not for this one. Not for this one. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. We, so for for this particular project, we didn't uh, we didn't 
test other... We, did, we only had a small range of sensors, which are the ones I mentioned before, sleep, pattern, GSV, um, but none of the others. But uh, I'll, just, I'll just go through the next bit. So what I'm going to talk about is uh, some work we've done more recently uh, with uh, Birkbeck College. We've been collaborating with uh, a colleague of mine uh, and collaborator for many years, Professor George Roussos. Um, and George is uh, one of the uh, academics leading a research project uh, into um, Parkinson's disease. And they're designing a very simple way for people with Parkinson's to collect information about their, their experience of Parkinson's. Uh, and Stefan, uh, who designed the algorithms for these, uh, is currently doing a PhD there. Mm. So we've been applying some of the work uh, we did before with this particular project. So this, this project is called Cloud UDPRS, uh, if you want to go and look it up. Um, and as I said, it's about mapping the wide variation of symptoms that people who have Parkinson's experience. If you don't know, Parkinson's is a disease which encompasses a high variability of symptoms. Um, and you'd think this ought to imply a high personalization of medical care and the management regimes for their illness. But, and this is the key thing, care management is determined upon a, a scale called the Universal Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. This is derived from around about 70 different factors of motor performance uh, against which a, uh, an individual Parkinson's patient is classified against. Now, these factors themselves are collapsed into a single summary statistic, so, you know, a 1 to 100 number. Uh, and this is used to then assign treatment for patients according to where they lie on the scale. Now, this can be a very effective mechanism uh, to communicate the multiple dimensions of Parkinson's disease uh, as a linear scale of progression. So obviously people nearer 100 have got a much higher incidence of Parkinson's symptoms and people lower down have got a lower incidence. But because of the enormous variation, it's common for people with very, very different symptoms to score similarly on the scale, and yet they require very different treatment and care. Now, one of the things that uh, we've been looking at in this particular way of allying data manifestation with the uh, Birkbeck's work in kind of analyzing um, the, the, the rating scale is to think about how important it could be in the future for people to express the uniqueness of an individual's experience of a very complex uh, illness like Parkinson's. It would be a very important for the individual in terms of personal dignity, but also it would be extremely useful as a tool to convey the wide variations uh, in an easily appreciable manner to policymakers. So this is one of the reasons where we think this is, it's more than just kind of interesting, pretty stuff. It actually could have a really direct function. So what I'm going to show you here, uh, I'm afraid the image isn't terribly good, but I've got a few others. Um, what I'm going to show you here is four shells that we generated uh, about three months ago um, from four individuals who've taken part in this trial and uh, contributed their data to this. Uh, and what these four uh, shells do is they show you just taking three uh, data, data sources, 
they show the extreme variability on people who I think, uh, from my understanding, are relatively similar on the UDPRS scale. I believe so. Something like, yeah, it would be something like that. I don't have that information because that would be too much data for me to have, you know, because this is obviously uh, personal biodata. But the relationships, um, you can see I've got the four examples printed at, at a sort of slightly larger scale here. Um, and by all means, when we finish, come up and have a feel. Um, essentially, what we did was we, uh, we mapped the tremor in left hand to the length of the shell spiral, so long length or compressed, uh, the overall growth of the shell, uh, i.e. its volume, is related uh, or mapped to their left leg agility. And the, uh, one of the other tests, which is called two-target finger tapping, again on the left-hand side. We only dealt with left-hand side data for this particular trial. This is mapped to the frequency of the ridges uh, on the outside of the shells. So you can begin to see, for, for people who are scoring similarly on the scale that's going to assign them treatment, there's actually high variability in the difference of their experience. So you add that, you think that's just three of 70 different, um, uh, three out of 70 different factors that could be, could be analyzed in this way. So we can begin to add many, many more data sets into this and add increasing complexity to the growth patterns of the, of the shells. Things like the number and increment of rotations, ripples in the curve and the sweep, uh, twists, additional twists could be used. Uh, and then we can also begin to look at adding additional geometric uh, entities onto the shell surface. So shell surface deformation could also be driven by additional data sets that could be bumps, nodules, spines, those kinds of things. As I said also, we only, we only dealt with some uh, three data, data sources from the left-hand side of a patient. But because there is a significant difference between the left and right-hand side of the body, we could begin in future to think about creating what you might think of as a clamshell, so two shells together, to look at the difference between, say, what a patient experiences on their left and on their right-hand side. So, with just three things, we've been able to demonstrate a really high uh, differentiation and individuation between four different people. So as I said, you know, the, the thing to think is, well, wh how useful is this? What can we really do with this, this kind of technique? Uh, and my, my feeling is we're, we're living at a time where there is so much data. We're swimming in ever-increasing amounts of data from all different sources, whether it's uh, automatic sensing data from systems and products and services around us to the data we're generating from our activities and our bodies. How do we make sense of this? We're constantly being told that it's overwhelming us, but is that because we're mainly using very, a very, very narrow band of our, of our sensory capabilities to actually try to make sense of this stuff? And if we begin to expand it out, we can look at other, other ways of stimulating the senses. Uh, there's at least 11 major senses that the, human, the, the average human being has. Some, sometimes people think of that up to 19, and uh, I heard as much as 28. But if we begin to think about how we can use a much more complex arrangement of these senses, then I think uh, there's 
an enormous amount of potential in uh, rethinking what data is, what it means to us, and how we can begin to make sense of it in the future. I'll stop for there. Yeah, great presentation, uh, Giles. Thank you. I wasn't quite clear at the end when you were talking about the, fi the final thing you were talking about with the shells, the four shells that mm -hmm. you'd uh, generated. Um, d do those, would those have any uh, function or any role in the uh, medical process in terms of... Um, like say the the, the doctors, um, like like s s supposing each patient had a shell and the doctor picked up the shell from the patient for the patient that was like say sitting in front of them in their consulting office, and sort of could could get a kind of idea of um, uh, from the shell of their the the, the sort of base condition of their patient. Are you thinking of, of some role uh, like that that could be yeah. um, directly used for? Yeah, I mean, it, one of the difficulties that a lot of people, for instance, with Parkinson's face is when they say, or someone says, I've got Parkinson's, what does that mean? And what does it mean to other people? So having a way, one of the things we've, we've found is people having something they can actually show and say, well, my experience of this disease feels like this, and it's qualitatively different to what another person with Parkinson's might feel. So there's that element, the ability to communicate some sense of, of what the feeling of a condition is. Um, there's another aspect to that, which is, again, that we, we would like to look at, but it, it's quite tricky, uh, which would be, is there stuff being collected in the data that because we're looking at it only from a visual sense in terms of you know the graph and uh, uh, the pattern of, of visualizing the data from a, from collected from somebody with an illness, are there patterns that we're missing because we're only looking at it from a visual perspective? So this is one of the questions that we would like to ask um, in a future project ex exploring with clinical with clinicians to think about, might, might there be ways to perceive different patterns? Because if we're only looking at data on a screen, perhaps there are things we're missing. It's very hard to tell. Then again, you've also got to be thinking about how you're, what you're collecting in the first place. But yes, there's another aspect also to the, the issue um, in terms of having something that you could take to a physician and have a discussion with them about your condition. So, I mean, we were imagining, excuse me, I'm going to sneeze in a minute. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, <laughs> we, we were imagining that um, you might produce these every, every month or every three months, or, and you would essentially kind of curate uh, an exhibition of your experience, whatever it was, whether it was just, you know, your general health or something more specific. And that could then be, you'd be able to, over time, see the, the changes actually made manifest in an object. So that becomes a way of thinking about how the long-term patterns, which are very hard for us to perceive, uh, we've got an awful, particularly with digital technologies, it's all about the now, it's all about the moment, 
uh, and the speed of progression of things. We don't have very many digital technologies that are particularly good at showing long-term patterns or revealing long-term patterns. Though I don't see why we couldn't actually deliver that. But having something which you could look to over a period of time could be a very uh, interesting way of thinking about the relationship between yourself and your experience. There's one other little aspect I'm going to mention beyond that, which we began to think about. As we began exploring this idea, we began to talk about this idea and present it. I presented this at a data ethics uh, symposium at the Alan Turing Institute a few months ago. And there were quite a few cybersecurity people there and people involved in medical ethics. And one of the things that people got very excited about is this idea that you could carry med highly sensitive medical data around with you in a form that nobody else would understand other than you and a physician who you would be able to have a discussion with to interpret the object. So, you know, we're talking about this idea of data veiling, that you could veil, your, you could carry your information with you in a fairly secure format because it'd be almost impossible to reverse engineer back to the original data that generated any of these objects. And that could be another kind of profound way of changing our relationship to data. I just wanted, because <clears throat> you're doing something that I'm really fascinated with uh, biofeedback, mm -hmm. like, with, like how we relate to our environment and how we relate with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if there's any scope, is there would be any scope with using that data as a live feedback to the body of the, the patient? So, I mean, if my hand is trembling, I'm realizing yeah. for a lot of Parkinson people, we actually not realize that they're trembling. Yeah. If they, if they have a, a way of getting a feedback from that, from that data, that goes, your hand is trembling, be aware of it. Yeah. I mean, not with this, because this, this is a slow process, because yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously we have to collect the data first, then we have to clean the data, and then it has to be fed through uh, into yeah. the, 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 this project's called Livestream, so the yeah, Livestream's yeah. process. So it's not, it's not a dynamic yeah, thing, okay. it's, more, it's more about, in a sense, creating a snapshot yeah. of a period of time, and often these, this is data that's collected over a week or a month. Yeah. Um, the, what you might like to do is look at the project uh, which is called Cloud UDPRS, and I think it's UDPRS.net. Okay. Uh, but I could, you know, we can yeah, sort out yeah. the link. Um, because they've developed, uh, Birkbeck and their partners have developed um, a smartphone app, which okay. I think it, it does not quite 20 of the factors. So we're using data from, from that, so you can mm -hmm. test yourself. Okay. Uh, and that's that's where the data has been uh, derived from for this set of shells. All right. So you use that app to get to to get to collect yeah. the data, yeah? Yeah. And that's an experimental app to kind of actually give people with Parkinson's mm -hmm. uh, the ability to measure themselves along some, uh, I think, uh, slightly less than twenty of the the seventy main factors used in the in the rating scale. Okay. All right. That's great. Thank you. You're welcome. Are there any other questions for Giles? Well, one here. No. You, no, you said at one point about um, when people are using Fitbits and stuff like that mm. and they're gathering, there's all this data being gathered, but people don't often return to the, to the place to look at their data. And I think it made me consider why um, a lot of those organizations have failed on that point. Mm. And often those big... Um, 
those devices are made because they want to cull vast amounts of data from the big population to use either in medical research or in social, yeah. you know, t to understand how we work and what to sell us. And so I think that maybe that's why that that gap, they're not actually interested in us improving our own health, perhaps. I think you're right. When back in 2012, when we started this project, um, when we were told un unofficially that uh, I think around about 90% of devices after a short time, like a month or so, were basically going offline, you, the first question was, how do they know? Uh, and the obvious thing was the devices reported back to the manufacturers. Now, they didn't reveal this till 2013, halfway through the year. So, and the, these devices have already been on the market for a couple of years. So essentially, if you bought a Fitbit or uh, any of those kinds of devices, they were reporting back to the manufacturers your data. But they didn't bother to tell anybody that they were doing this. And I think, as you say, that throws up enormous... Uh, questions around why the devices were being made you know for whom for whose benefit mm -hmm. um, and again I think you know that it, it presents real issues in terms of thinking well are we getting the devices we really want or are really useful to us uh, or are we actually you know sleepwalking into uh, you know essentially being producers of data for somebody else's benefit um, and essentially I I think by one of the roles of artists is often to challenge and question this thing. I mean, we're often uh, at the forefront of kind of hacking together and building things that don't really do what they're intended to do. And uh, a phrase uh, that I rather like in this um, is creative misuse. Uh, I like to think that what we often we're doing is we look at the, uh, the, the technologies, the tools that are being provided, um, you know, they're being made and manufactured because someone wants to make a profit somewhere. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, that's, that's just an observation of the world around us. People, that's how our world operates. But I think we've got to question these things all the time. And, and uh, there is room and space in our society to challenge uh, and to play with these things and to disrupt the flows uh, that otherwise, I think, begin to really hem people in and trammel us in very tight ways. So for me, this, is, this isn't really about creating products um, that people could sell. I mean, lots of people say, oh, I'd love to have a shell. It would be so nice. But actually, that's not really the point. The point is to think about how do we, how do we expand our senses? How do we explore the range of our capabilities and our capacities to interact with the world, interact with the systems that we're creating in the world and feel that we have agency. At the end of the day, all the work I'm interested about is about feeling empowered. It's about feeling you have agency and that you're not locked into somebody else's system. Um, this is, of course, extremely appropriate given <laughs> our current situation, uh, socially and politically. Um, but I think this is, this is the role that artists offer. Uh, not all artists, but uh, people who work in this kind of way. Question here. This is still a visual representation of data. It's a tactile one as well. You can come and feel them. Uh, can you give some idea of what, uh, what order of, uh, in which orders, which other senses could you use, and which one would be the next ones to try? Um, well, if you think about the, the way that uh, we interact with the world, um, everything is, if, if you can see, everything is visual. 
There's very little that is entirely invisible. There are some things. Obviously, smell is something that we don't tend to see. But one of the aspects about a, a three-dimensional an object is we don't just feel it and we don't just look at it. We also have a uh, spatio-perceptual relationship to it. So that's to do with our kinetic sense and our balance, sense of balance and proprioception, which is the relationship we have to things around us which tell us where we are in the world. So all of these things, you, no matter how big or small they are, uh, as once they become an object, they, uh, they operate on multiple sensory levels in a way that a visualization on a screen simply doesn't. You don't have a spatial re relationship to the data on a screen. You're not able to use your sense of proprioception. Uh, you can't really use, uh, you can't have a tactile relationship to the data if it's represented uh, on a screen. These are all the ways in which I think this does something quite qualitatively different. Um, there are a few other people over the years who've experimented with uh, smell and uh, combining uh, different chemicals to produce smells which create a sensory environment that you can relate to different different forms of information. Um, I think somebody even produced a, a, a smell generator quite recently, which could be hooked up to uh, different data sets. I can't remember the name of the project offhand, um, but I think these are these are beginning to be ways in which we can think of we could. What would it be like to be able to move through an environment, perhaps where we. You know, it might be a room that we decide to fill with different uh, capabilities. So you change, for instance, air pressure. Uh, you could, you could uh, uh, years ago, I d did a project uh, where we were trying to, it was about um, uh, abnormal, uh, the, the difference between normal and abnormal brain development. And we were trying to give people who were able-bodied a sense of what it might be like to have their senses disrupted. Uh, so we had hot and cold zones, we had quadraphonic sound, which changed your sense of... And we also put the floor on a slant. So you moved into an environment where your normal capacity... And it was dark, that was the other thing, so you couldn't really see. And there was a range of different ways that we disrupted people's senses. Interestingly enough, an awful lot of people found it a really comforting environment to be in, which was n the opposite of what we anticipated. But... I think if, if you can begin to uh, think about the complexity of the way our bodies are able to interpret enormous amounts of stimuli, stimuli coming in from the outside, uh, it gives us an incredibly rich way of thinking about if, if we're overwhelmed with data, then perhaps we just need to put the data in, into another form that we can interact with it on a much more complex way and not be afraid of having to collapse everything down into what we call summary statistics. On that note, Giles, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.